are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Today I'd like to start a series on James. Oh, you know, I remember a time um, someone asked me, Pastor David, why don't you speak topically like subjects on marriage or relationships or on like seven deadly sins or whatever. Um, while I don't think there's inherently t- anything too wrong about topical preaching, I do, however, find it, if done, tempting to keep going and keep doing it and thereby cheat the rest of Scripture. Topical preaching to me, especially for Sunday sermons, is like the same as when we do our quiet times and we say, okay, God, I want you to speak to me today. What are you trying to say to me today? And so we open up our, our Bibles and we go, and we read it here, and like we'll read something like, ye shall not round the corners of your heads, and you're like, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. You know? And you're like, what does that mean? What does that even mean, right? But doing a series allows the listeners, you guys, to follow along with me in a journey. Remember, many of these books were written in such a way that they were meant to be read in one sitting or, in their case, a long time ago, listened to in one sitting. Not only that, when we do sermon series, it allows me as the preacher to remain faithful to whatever the Lord is revealing. Uh, As in, I don't have a choice in skipping that passage or passing on from that verse because it might not be met with approval here or because there are people in my congregation who I know are struggling with it. Because here's the, de- here's the deal. Our very life depends on the Word of God. Do you believe that? It depends on the Word of God, so we mustn't shrink away from it, but boldly go forth into it, relying upon its freeing and redeeming power. Can I, say, can I hear an amen? amen? Right? Matthew 4, 4 says, Man shall not live by what bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, if we want to live life to the fullest, the way that God intended, we must listen to and obey God's entire written word, not just the parts that we want to hear. All right? So why the book of James? Because this book, it helps define genuine faith in the most practical ways. We just came back from Nehemiah. Was that an intense series or what? It truly was. I hope you were challenged by that. But now we're talking about, okay, so what does it now mean to be, not, not just the corporate church, not what we're called to be as a congregation, but now what are we called in terms of the individual? What am I supposed to do now as part of the body of Christ here? And what's cool is this, not just talking about the genuine faith in terms of its practicality, but what's even cooler is that the book of James has this wonderful parallelism to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. And so the aim of this series is to practically understand what faith means and looks in its relationship with works. You see, here's the problem. James was working with a lot of Jewish Christians. And many of these guys, even though they were Christians, still were wrapped up in that whole mosaic law system of works, and it was just ingrained into them. And so James was just combating that. It's like like telling a Korean Christian parent that their child not getting into all Ivy League schools isn't the end of the world. They'll be like, what? What does that even mean? So James takes a considerable amount of time and effort in explaining that no one is justified by works of the law but only by Christ. 
That's the whole premise, okay? So who is James? James is the brother of Jesus, meaning he is one of Joseph's and Mary's natural children. And he'll later go on becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And this book has one of the earliest published date, which makes it one of, if not the very first book of the New Testament. And you might be thinking, well, Pastor David, you don't know your Bible very well. The first book of the New Testament is Matthew. Well, the Bible isn't in chronological order. Rather, it's broken down, by, broken down by types of literature, right? We have the historical. We have the wisdom literature. We have the major and minor prophets. We have the gospel and the epistles, so on. Now, here's what I want to do for this sermon today. I want to kind of go backwards here and start from verse 4. Because really, in order to understand this whole introduction, I think starting from verse 4 will help us understand the impact of this text better. And so here's our first point, okay? Our first point is that God has a great plan for us. Can I hear an amen? Can you say that to your neighbor? God has a great plan for you. Now here's the thing. When we think about plan, we typically think of the vocational, don't we? As in what we want to do in our careers, right? How many times have we prayed to God seeking some sort of clarity and direction as to where we should go and, and what we should do? I think it really started with me when I was in college. Those of you in college... You probably know when you're picking out a major, you're probably thinking this is what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. To that I say, ha, right? I mean, I remember freshman year in college, as an Asian American with Korean parents, you know what I was thinking, right? I said, God, should I become a doctor or a doctor? <laughs> and then you end up graduating with a degree you never thought you'd have. You know, even as professionals, we're still asking that question to God, aren't we? God, what career path should I take? What job should I take? What position should I take? And we think that God has only this one plan or one path for us, so we better be wise in choosing the correct one. But that's not what God's having a plan, that's not what God having a plan for us is all about. His plan isn't about what we should do. Get this. His plan is more about what he wants to do with us. Okay? It's not about where he is trying to lead you. He'll lead you. He'll take you. That's not the point. It's about what he wants to do in you. What he wants to do in me. That's his plan. His plan is for us to be mature. That's what the verse is saying here. Mature. Now another word that can be used is the word to perfect. Perfect. And I know no one can be perfect. No one can be perfect. But you have to understand that there's intent Behind every word, although perfection in our eyes, in our minds, in our hearts is unattainable, it is nonetheless God's ultimate goal for us in absolute holiness. Holiness as a Christian isn't about being immune to sin. It's, it's about recognizing what sin is. And it's about fighting against sin. And it's about claiming victory over sin through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. But this all has to do with God's desire for us to grow in maturity. Think of it this way. No parent wants their child to remain as an infant. Then there's something wrong. Grace and I are raising our daughter towards maturity. God is doing the same thing with you and me. He's growing us. He's wanting us to grow. He's raising us so that we won't be like spiritual babies anymore. Another way to look at that word mature is through the word complete. This means fully developed, no missing parts, well-balanced. This is a picture of 
wholeness. God wants us to be whole, not to be deficient in anything. You get that? This means this. If you love worshiping God, but you get so easily angered if something were to go wrong, you're deficient. You get that? If you know much of Scripture, and you could, you could quote any part in Scripture, but you lack wisdom in applying it to life, you're deficient. If you're great at giving biblical counsel, but you're not so good at taking it, you're deficient. If you're generous to yourself, but stingy with others, you're deficient. I'm deficient in many ways, and I'm still growing, and I'm still maturing. He wants us to grow in spiritual maturity and to become spiritually mature. To become that way is by listening to the words of God and then obeying the words of God. That's it. It's a very simple equation. You want to grow. You want to be strengthened. You want to, you want to mature. You need to hear the word of God, and then you must dot, 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 obey the words of God. Turn to your neighbor and say this. You got to hear the words of God and obey the words of God. <laughs> you guys sound like a bunch of drones. Like, you must hear the words of God. Right? And now here's the thing. A lot of people think that sounds tyrannical to me. Hear? Like, you're saying, Pastor Dave, for me to mature, I need to hear the word of God and then like robotically obey the word of God? That just sounds Oppressive. That sounds like God is some power-obsessed tyrant trying to make our lives miserable. Or maybe he's just a loving father raising us to be all that he has dreamed for his children. When we discipline Ada, when Grace and I press Ada for excellence or discipline her to remove some fault or train her to correct a weakness, is it because we're bad parents? Huh? Is it because we're Parents bent on making her little 20-month life miserable? No, of course not. And quite honestly, maybe during those times, Ada doesn't exactly see us as all too loving either. But in reality, we do this because we have a greater plan for her than she has for herself. I'm not against her. I love her more than life itself. In the same way, God has great plans for us. He has plans to mature us and to grow us, to perfect us, to make us whole. And if that means we need to listen more and obey more, then so be it. I want all of us to get that notion of, of comfort and luxury and perfect health and perfect existence out of our minds and our hearts. That was never God's intention. That was never God's goal of making us that way. No, no, no. This life right now that you and I are living, it is a test did you know that? This life is a test. It's a trial for the real life that's up ahead. That life up ahead, that's when we truly get to live without the problems of sin and death. But for now, this is where, by faith, we grow, where we train, where we mature and get ready. We're not meant to live that perfect life here and now. We're not called to live our best lives here and now. And if there are people who live in the lap of luxury, without any care in the world, and they're Christians, then honestly, praise God. By His grace and abundance of blessings upon them. Because Romans 9, 18 says, Therefore God has mercy on whom he, has, who he wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. In other words, fine, 
God blesses whomever he wants to bless, and he has every right to do so. But that also means those who have been given much, much will be demanded. Luke 12, 48, meaning that, that means those who are doing well in life, who aren't struggling like we are struggling, they're also called to give up more in life. You know? So God's plan isn't for you guys to just live comfortably and perfectly without any type of burden or stress in life. No, no, no. That's what Satan wants. That's why he's ingrained that idea in the minds of all people. So we're always aspiring towards fame, wealth, success, power, sex, all that stuff. You know what God's plan for us is? From day one, it says in Romans 8.29, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Did you hear that? He's saying this, even before we were born, God dreamed of making us like Jesus. That was his plan. Making us like Jesus. That's our plan. That should be our goal. That's what we should be striving towards, to be like Jesus every day. People, are you growing to be like Christ or not? You know, there was a point in my life when I first started ministry, and I was still trying to develop my voice as a pastor, trying to develop my style, my method, my whatever you want to call it. And so I would just binge on other pastors to understand and really understand how they would, how they would do it, how they would approach things. And so I typically just kind of was drawn towards John Piper and Mark Driscoll. I just really appreciated their theology and I appreciate their approach to preaching. But soon I started realizing I started sounding like them. You know, my mannerisms started looking like them. John Piper and a little bit of Francis Chan this way, and then Mark Driscoll, I'll start getting your face and start yelling at you, maybe cursing at you, you know. I will do that. But I stopped by the grace of God. If you want to be more like Christ, you need to get more of Christ in you, okay? Are you hearing him? Are you reading him? Are you loving him? Are you with him? That's God's great plan for us, to be like Christ. Not like Mike, like Christ. Are you involved with his word? This goes into our second point from verse 3. God tests us to toughen, to strengthen, to build our faith. Has anyone ever run a marathon? Yeah, me neither. I've seen people run. I don't know why they would do that. But I've seen it. I've seen a marathon on TV. It's interesting how from the beginning... You see hundreds, if not thousands of people just crammed together behind that starting line, ready and just amped to start the race. Then after the whatever many hours pass by, the camera pans across the finish line. Instead of that massive crowd, you only see maybe a trickle of people cross the finish line. And I'm thinking, where are all the others? Now, I know on TV we only get to see the first, second, third place winners, but in reality, there are hundreds who finish over a long period of time. But what we don't get to witness are the many who quit, are the many who just walk off the side. We don't get to see the ones who drop out along the way because their guts wrenched, the lungs burning from lack of oxygen, legs are cramping, and all that stuff. And I'm sure there are a myriad of reasons why people don't finish, but most likely there are ones who are unable to finish were the ones who weren't conditioned enough or tough enough to finish the marathon. They just couldn't do it. 
Here's the thing. The marathon of life is also littered with spiritual casualties. Now, I've heard a lot of stories that begin with, well, Pastor Day, I, I, used to be, I used to believe all that Christian stuff. I used to go to church all the time. But a lot of things have happened. I've had a lot of questions. A lot of stuff just happened. And, well, this Christian stuff became unimportant to me. It just doesn't matter to me anymore. Those are spiritual casualties. These people may or may not have some sort of small faith, but they died in spiritual infancy. And they never came to know the joys and challenges of Christian maturity. And we can only guess that these are people who never had genuine faith in the Lord to begin with. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We believe, and, and Scripture makes it clear, that those whom God has chosen to be saved will not be lost. Get that? If God has saved you, he's going to maintain you. Amen? If God has a great plan to save them, then with that great plan comes a plan, okay, comes a plan to train and condition them for the race so that they may endure to the end. This means that the problems of our lives are opportunities that God has laid before us to toughen our faith for the long perseverance. This includes things like sickness and poverty, physical handicaps, suffering, death of loved ones, your own impending death, financial pressures, social pressures, loss of job, uh, marital difficulties, trouble with children, discrimination, other infinite number of problems that come with this fallen world. And here's the thing. From verse 1, it says this. It says, all these issues that come with life, it says we fall into it. We fall into these trials. That's the same expression that God used, okay, that Jesus used in the Good Samaritan parable, the man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It said he fell among the thieves. You see, the problem, these problems aren't problems that we're looking for. In fact, we're trying to avoid these type of problems, and yet, despite our best efforts, we still fall into them. Now, I'm not saying that God is the cause of all evil because he's not, nor am I trying to minimize any suffering that any person here is going through. But here's the truth of the matter. This is the only point here I'm trying to make, is that trouble comes. We will inevitably face difficulty in our life, right? You will face suffering. You will endure hardship. You will face discrimination, persecution, whatever it is. It will be difficult, whether it's health or spiritual or mental or intellectual, whatever it is, it will come. Trouble still comes. And so instead of asking God, why is it coming? We have to start asking God, what are you trying to reveal to me from this? What are you trying to teach me through this? And he'll reveal to you that it's to toughen our faith and use that difficult trial for a greater purpose that we have yet to realize. Turn to your neighbor and say this. It's to strengthen our faith. The last point is that, yes, we must trust in God's great plan. And that we must know that God desires to strengthen our faith from these trials. But that last point is we, need to, we should rejoice in what God is doing. Now, this is, this is a hard one. We have to rejoice in what God is doing. Verse 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you feel trials of various kinds. Count it all joy? Are you kidding me? Man. Now here's the thing. We live in a culture that's all about feelings, isn't it? It's all about feelings. If it feels right, it's okay. 
Go with your feelings. Trust your heart. I love how Jeremiah 79 squashes that notion by saying, the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful. So, ladies, if a guy ever comes to you and says, baby, I give you my heart, say, please. The heart is deceitful. So naturally, this feeling culture begins to enter into our faith culture. And I've done this too. Haven't we said at one point, I just don't feel you, God, anymore. I just don't feel God anymore. I want to feel you, Lord. Well, here's what we know so far from what God has revealed to us. We know that God has a great plan for us, bringing us towards maturity and completeness. We know that the way he is developing our perseverance will lead us through various trials and tests. We know that the reason for the troubles in our lives is to toughen our faith in order that we might persevere and to rejoice. Now God says this, On the basis of what you know about my ways with you, I want you to rejoice in what I am doing. Now that you know what I am revealing and trying to do to you and through you and for you because of you, rejoice. Rejoice. You've got the cheat sheet. Rejoice. But we might say, but God, I don't feel your comfort. I don't feel your encouragement, so how can I go on? Here's the thing. This past week, uh, those of you who are in my membership class probably noticed that I wasn't there teaching, right? Well, my wife, daughter, and I, we went on vacation with my in-laws. It'll be pretty much our last one for a few years as Grace enters into residency. And um, our daughter hasn't seen her, um, her grandparents, Grace's, Grace's parents, for over a year. So we decided to have this one last little hurrah before all the stuff happens. Well, at the hotel, I went inside the pool with Ada holding her. And uh, immediately, she dips her face down and takes in a mouthful of disgusting cesspool water. And I said, Ugh, Ada, no, don't drink that water. Dirty. Koreans, GG. Forgive me if that's your name, right? <laughs> I said, dirty. Now, she just gave me this look of, like, confusion. Because she knows that at home and everywhere else we're going, is, if it's not milk, we're always trying to, we're trying to get her to drink water. And we say, drink water. Water, drink. It's good. It's good for you. I don't. I want milk. I want milk. No, drink water. It's good. And then, and then now here we are in this massive pool, and it's all this water. She drinks, and I yell and rebuke her. She's like, "Well, what the heck, man?" <laughs> and so I said, "Don't." And so she looks at me, and I could see just, just really the depravity of the human heart, even in her. And she looks at me, and she sticks out her tongue, and she looks at me as she dips it down. <laughs> And she literally just dips it, and I was like, no, I kind of flick her little tongue. I go, stop, ew, don't do that. Dirty, don't drink it. I am unable to explain to her how dirty pool water with all the bodies that were floating around, shedding their skin, peeing, whatever, all the chlorine and other chemicals that were introduced, she wouldn't have understood it. 
because I don't really understand it. She simply had to go by my word that it was bad and not good for her. She felt like, you know, it's water. It was okay to drink it. After all, in her mind, it's just, again, water. But I knew better. It's like that with us and God. As smart as we think we are, God knows better. And God is asking us to trust him and not just go on how or what we feel is right for us. This is how we can rejoice even in suffering. And it goes the same way for us, simply trusting God in all things. And this is this. Do you trust that God is God? Do you trust that God is good and always good? Do you trust that God is in control? Do you trust that God knows everything? Do you trust, do you completely, completely trust that God loves you? Loves you. Adores you is obsessed with you, is infatuated with you, is passionate for you. In other words, do you trust in God's character? Why did Ada listen to me after the second rebuke? She didn't drink any more water after that. Not that I know of. Why? Because she trusts that I am her dad. I'm the only man out of all men here in this world that will change her diaper, carry her, console her, feed her, bathe her, walk with her, play with her, sleep with her, laugh with her, listen to her, speak to her, love her, and die for her. So she says, so fine, Daddy, I won't drink the pool water. There's only one God out there, people. There's only one, the triune God of the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three distinct personhoods, but equally one and the same. Our God is the only one who will do everything he can for his children. Only God the Father can love us like none other. Only God the Son, Jesus, can die for us like none other. And only God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can be with us and for us like none other. When you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior who bridged that eternally sized gap between us and the Father, you'll soon realize who God is. And when you know who God is, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life will lead you to trust and obey Him. And that even means rejoicing even in the darkest of times because God is God and He is with us. So we must trust that God has a great plan for us to mature. We must also know that these trials are here to toughen our faith so that we may persevere. And lastly, we must rejoice in the Lord despite all the hardships because as dark as the clouds might be, there is no cloud dark enough to block out the eternal radiance of God's sovereign rule because if God is for us, who can be against us? All right? Let's pray. Well, brothers and sisters I, and friends, I want to encourage you guys to take this opportunity as we prepare for this time of communion to reflect on what you've just heard today. What is it that the Lord is saying to you? 
what is it that the Lord is revealing to you? Is it, is it unbelief? Do you feel like, as that expression goes, Lord, I can't take that leap of faith, that leap into the unknown. But let me tell you something here. When you know who God is, it is not a gamble. When you know the consistency and the faithfulness and the true character of who God is, it is not a leap into the unknown. On the contrary, it is a leap into the known. It is the most secure thing you will ever do in your life. But it comes with faith. Do you trust in the words that you have been reading, that you have been hearing and listening to? If so, will you obey it now in faith and leap into the warm embrace of our Father? Will you confide and repent and confess in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior? Then and only then will you have the Father. Will you cry out to the Holy Spirit and admit your brokenness and your need for repair and for healing and for reconciliation and for resolution? The Holy Spirit will regenerate you and lead you to the Son who will then lead you to the Father. You see, we need God. But we need to admit our need for God. As we prepare for this communion, this is a wonderful act instituted by Christ in that it allows us to really examine and judge ourselves. Christian or not, as a non-Christian, you have to, you have to start thinking, what do I believe? Where am I going to go? Is, is this all that life has to offer? I wake up, I work, I eat, sleep, play, press, repeat for 90 years, 100 years, maybe, and after that, that's it? My legacy is just how much money I have in my account or the kids I leave behind. Is, is that all I was made to do? Are you no different from all the other animals that do the same exact thing? Eat, sleep, play, procreate. Eat, sleep, play, procreate. Is that what we're all meant to No. Ask yourself the bigger question. Ask yourself the eternal question. And for those of you who are in Christ, this time of communion is, is really a time for you to, to restore your fellowship because let me say, every moment of every day, Satan is attacking our our firm grip with the Lord, he's constantly challenging us. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, you may have a relationship, but you know what? I'm going to make sure that you don't talk with him. I'm going to make sure that you hate him. I'm going to make sure you do everything you can to distance yourself from him. And maybe it's that sin issue that's in your life. Maybe it's that person in your life who's not helping you get to God, but rather tearing you further away. Maybe it's that distraction. Whatever it is, you got to ask yourself, is it helping me get to God or is it hurting me?
Now this communion is a time for us to examine ourselves and really reflect upon what Christ has done. That 2,000 years ago, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came here not to, not for others to die for him, but for him to die for others. And so he's asking us right now, will you do this in remembrance of me? Will you believe and trust that my death was sufficient for you to satisfy the wrath of God? Will you trust that my resurrection gives you hope of yours, of eternal life? Will you trust that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me? The bread and juice signifies what? It signifies the broken body of Christ and his shed blood all for you and ultimately for the glory of God. Can I give you guys a minute or two to integrate the message that you've heard today along with the message that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And where you place, where you're placed in the mix right there. Let's go ahead and take this opportunity and pray.